Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the church in Acts. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to ask you to do us a favor. If you have benefited from listening to these sermons, if you found value in listening to this podcast, then it would be awesome if you would consider leaving us a rating and or review. If you'll do that, it will help our sermons be heard by more people, and we think that that is super important. Like I said, if you find these sermons to be important for you, help somebody else hear them by leaving us a rating or review. Hey, again, thanks for taking some time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. So I'll start with a, a confession, and it goes against kind of the grain of this passage, but uh, it, it's this, that if I have an hour to work or an hour to pray, then most of the time I'll pick the, the, the work. I, I, will, I will just say, well, I need to get this done. And it's funny because as a pastor, you know, that's a harder decision, right, than some of you. But if I have to choose, I find myself... Uh, moving towards the tendency of I need to work harder and I need to get more done. And uh, Martin Luther famously said something to the effect of, I have a lot to do today, I better pray another hour. And it's, it's not fitting of me and who I am. And I don't think it's fitting uh, of most uh, of the modern church. I think that America has taken the church and they've made it look an awful lot like every other organization in the world. And we've really, if we're being honest, in the majority of modern Christian America, we, we've kind of taken the spiritual stuff and relegated it to secondary, to somewhere in the back, somewhere you know, in the basement, you know, something we don't talk about, something we don't think about. Uh, but instead, we focus on if we're thinking about church at all, getting the work done and working harder and coming up with a better plan and all of those things. And uh, it's really seen in these two data points that I found that, that are staggering and, and I think they together show how little we care about the movement of God versus what we can accomplish on our own. And uh, they're from different years, and they're different data points, different, uh, different research, but I still think that the, the two things together paint this really bleak picture. And so one is from August 2017, and I think this was by Barna, uh, and they, they produced this article about uh, how people pray when they pray. And what they found is that only 2% of people pray most often within the context of church, okay? So that's not a big deal. That's, that's not surprising. I don't even think you should pray most often in the context of church because you should be praying, you know, at home, in your closet, in your bedroom, wherever you need to go to pray, alone with God. That should be the majority of your prayer time. That's fantastic. But just keep that in your head because of this next statistic. So only 2% of people who pray, and that's over the last three months, by the way, only 2% of people who prayed over the last three months before this study was conducted, prayed the majority of the time within the context of church. Now, put that with this stat, though, and it becomes, 
it, it almost becomes laughable. It becomes a real problem, and that's, that's this. Uh, the average Christian prays about one minute a day. Now think about that. Average Christian prays about one minute a day, but the average person that's praying usually doesn't do it in the church. That means that corporately as a church in America, right, that, that we're spending less than seven minutes a week together in prayer on average. Isn't that like crazy? Uh, interesting stat that I found right along with that. I don't, this is not really connected, but I, I find it interesting. For most Americans, uh, there's only one day of the week that they do more than seven minutes of something spiritual or religious, and that's Sunday when the number jumps to about 32 minutes on average. You could see that people go to church about two out of four times when they go to church. So about 32 minutes. But if you look at TV watching habits, people also average the most TV watching on Sundays, and it's 3.5 hours average person watches of television on Sunday afternoons. And so I just put these stats out there to say basically this. We have taken prayer lightly, but what these things suggest is that even within the context of church, this place that we would think like, well, there, there should be be prayer, right? Like prayer would be a part of it. We've, we've just relegated prayer to something that's, that's really unimportant. Less, less than, we're praying together, less than an average of one minute per day, even within the context of, of church. I've already talked about prayer in the series and how the early church, the first church, was filled with prayer. And today's kind of point isn't about prayer at all. It's about, I think, the reason that we don't pray. And I think the reason that we don't pray is because we care very little about God moving and acting in our midst. Let's just, for a second, just think about what prayer is. Prayer is this conversation with God. Uh, and, and the conversation can take many forms and I think most of those forms are really good. You know, I think there are times when we should be you know, face down remembering the, the power and awesomeness of God and it should be like approaching a king. But I think there's other times when we should have our, our eyes lifted up to the heavens and be thinking about God as, as a wonderful friend and savior. And I think sometimes that prayer should be in the corporate context and sometimes, as I mentioned earlier, we should do it as individuals. And sometimes we should say a lot and sometimes we should shut our mouths and sometimes we should... Uh, we should pray through prayers that were written down, you know, hundreds of years ago. And other times we should be fully led by the Spirit and just praying whatever God lays upon our hearts. And, and I think that prayer should take a, a variety of forms. But in all of it, isn't it about our need for the closeness and nearness of God and for His movement in our lives? Really, that's what we could boil, you know, the, the heartbeat of prayer down to, I need to be close to God, and I need God's help. That's why we pray. And so what does a lack of prayer suggest about us? 
It doesn't suggest we're too busy. It suggests we don't remember or think or consider the fact that we have a desperate desire, whether you believe it or not, to be near to God and for God to help you with everything, really. And so this morning, I, this, isn't about, this isn't about, and this passage of scripture isn't about, and my sermon's not about, we should be praying more. It's really about why, why we don't pray. And I believe, I do, that it's we no longer, we no longer feel desperate for God's presence, nor do we feel desperate for God's help. We believe, on the opposite side, that our work, our efforts, our plans, are more important than God's, than God's. And in the early church, we see really, we see really quite the, the opposite of that. We see this ragtag group of people that start with like, you know, 12 fishermen, 72 total, but like 12 fishermen as their leaders, and, and they're not all fishermen, but they're kind of like fishermen, hardworking, you know, not religious leader guys, and then there's this other group of 60 others who kind of, you know, have shown up and decided to follow Jesus, they believe in his resurrection, and then all of a sudden, as we've seen in this series, like 3,000 more from probably all walks of life are added, but there's not a ton of organization, it's like, hey, we're going to show up at this, at the temple, and Solomon's colonnade, we'll see that, the specific place within the temple courts, and we're gonna, we're gonna worship God together and talk about Jesus, and then we'll split up into homes and we'll hang out, we'll eat together, and we'll think about how much Jesus did for us by dying on a cross. But other than that, they don't have a great plan. They're flying by the seat of their pants. And so their natural tendency is to completely and utterly rely upon the power of God because they didn't come up with a good plan to make this incredible growth, this incredible unity happen, and I don't think they have a good plan to continue it. They're totally reliant on the power of God. And so today we're gonna look in in Acts chapter five, we'll start in verse 12, but before we do, uh, it's important to say that this is like a continuation of what we actually talked about last week, even though it's almost a full chapter later. In Acts 4, 32 through 35, we saw this wonderful summary passage of the early church, and and in between there and and our passage today, there's really this story about about how that was lived out. And, And so we saw, there's two stories, We saw, I kind of mentioned it last week, that the people were sharing, they were selling property and they were sharing the proceeds. We we were introduced to a guy named Barnabas. If you were here, you saw that. Barnabas sold a piece of property. He gave it to the apostles, said, hey, help somebody in need. Then we see kind of the counter story in the beginning of Acts chapter five with Ananias and Sapphira, this married couple who do the same thing almost. They sell a piece of property, they keep a little bit themselves, then they come to the disciples and their problem is not in not bringing all of it, but they say, here's all the money that we got from selling that property. And they lie to Peter and they lie to God really and say, hey God, look at all the money we got. And and they end up dying right on the spot. So 
don't lie about uh, what you're giving to the church. Uh, so there you go. Uh, not that you were telling us anyway, right? Um, and so that's kind of the, the digression, and I don't mean that in quality, but he steps away from kind of this summary. He gives us this story, and then he comes back to this summary of what the early church was like and what it did well. And again, one more time, I'm gonna say this every time we come to a summary statement in this series, and that's this. The summary statements for Luke are, are ultra important because they put the best foot of the church forward as he writes this letter, Acts, to this guy named Theophilus to talk about what's happening after Jesus rose and went back up into heaven. He says, here's, here's what was absolutely the best, the way that it should be, the way that the church should function, the way that it did function, the way that it should function again. And he writes these summary statements to say, look at how much God did. Look at how the church triumphed despite stories like Ananias and Sapphira where, the, where they lied. You know, this isn't a perfect church but it was a church that triumphed because of the work of God. And here maybe he epitomizes that in Acts 5, and this is how he begins, 5.12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Now the first part of that is really, the first sentence in that verse is where I wanna focus today, but I will point out again uh, that, that, he, that he mentions the unity of that early church and uh, the more literal translation would be something to the effect, all the believers were of one accord or one mind as they met together in Solomon's colonnade. And so this isn't just saying that they all gathered in one place, but it seems that at this point in, in the history of the church, they were still all coming together for one giant church service. But it's not, that's not the point Luke is trying to make. The point that Luke is trying to make is that when they were together, there was incredible unity. And that we're just, we're, we're incredibly far from that in the church, in America specifically, but, but also in the church around the world. And we see it in so many ways, right? Like, we see it in how churches can be really competitive with one another. And, and it feels like, and this is not true in Wilsonville, and I know I say that every time I talk about unity, and I like that about our city, but, it, but in you know, most places you could find people who are like, I don't want them to go to the church down the road because, because I want them at my church, even if the church down the road is a better church for those people. And I love that our church is, I think we've done an incredible job of saying, I know I have, when people are new to town saying, hey, if there's something about our church that isn't gonna be the best for you spiritually, then, then I can tell you a list of other churches in our town that will meet the specific needs that you have. Thankfully, I think that our church is the best, one of the best churches you can go to for many of you, right? Hopefully you, but we're not the only church. But so many times we see this competitive nature of the church. We want the people, we want their money, we want the numbers, but also we see it within local churches. And, and there's church splits all the time. I read this, uh, I'm part of this church communication group on Facebook and, and this, this person had posted and this, this church communication group covers everything from like, you know, how to, how to advertise things to the wording about things to do you like this sermon graphic, all kinds of stuff. And I don't contribute at all, I like to read it though. And this one person got on and said, hey, how do we deal with this problem? And, and the problem was this. 
our church is merging with another church and, and we've been working on a new name and our new name has 10 words in it. 10 words in the church's title. And, and the person is probably like a communication director. They're like, I can't fit that on anything, right? Like, how are we gonna put that on a website? And so you, you're, I'm reading the comments like, I have to hear the name, I have to hear the name, right? And finally, this person who had posted chimes in again because every single person is like, they're not answering her question. They're saying, what's the name? What's the name? What's the name, right? Like everybody is there for the entertainment at this point. And she gives the story. I don't remember the name. It was something like the historical church at something, something, something with something, 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 right? Uh, and, and what had happened, and this is so common, like you don't even bat an eye, is that there was this church split, and, and so the church split happened, and so they needed a new name, but also they wanted, it's a historical building and a historical church, one of the oldest in their area, and so they wanted to keep this kind of history behind the name, but they needed a separation from this old church, but they had hired a pastor that was bringing in his new church, and the people at the new church didn't want to give up their name, and so they just took it all and said, yeah, let's make a name. But you can see both like in the, in the church splitting, but also like, hey, we can't get rid of our name. Like, how dumb is that, right? If, if we were really one accord, then, then would any of that really matter? And then I read this story. Um, this is a real story, and I shouldn't smile about it, but it's kind of funny, and uh, maybe this news came across your radar, but there's a church built on top of the, uh, the site where um, where they believe Jesus was buried. Uh, and so there's, a, there's like an old church, like way old church on top of it. And uh, I don't know the history of all this, but through the years, the church has kind of been split up between different uh, flavors, different branches of Christianity. And, and like they've divided, this is awful, but they've like divided like that lamp is yours, you take ownership of that, and this spot's ours, and we get that bench, and you get this, and in 2002, this is crazy because it feels like something you read from like the 1700s, but in 2002, some Coptic monk decided that he was hot and moved his chair into the shade, and an Ethiopian, um, uh, Orthodox Ethiopian Christian didn't like it, so I don't know how this escalated, uh, but the article I read began like this, 11 monks injured in a fight. No joke, 11 monks injured in a fight, in a brawl really, because this guy had moved his chair into the shade. That's crazy, and that's not one accord. And if the, the church is going to be strong and good and healthy, then the church needs to have unity. The, the outside world, one of the things I think that the outside world can just not understand about us is wait, aren't you guys all on the same team but you don't act like it? Like what is that? Should I be a Christian over there or a Christian over here or a Christian over here? And, and what the Bible makes so clear is that the first church, it was Christianity and they were all there together and they, they loved each other and they, they cared about each other. They were of one accord. If we cannot be unified, if we can't be filled with unity, then we can't be anything like the early church and see the triumph that God did. But the other part of this is, is where I wanna focus in this morning in the time that we have left. And, and that's on this, signs and wonders. 
signs and wonders. There's an example of this in verses 15 and 16 at the end of this passage. And this is what it says. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits and, and, and notice this, all of them were healed. All of them were healed. So you see in this early church, and this is kind of what you think about when you think about the book of Acts, right? There are these incredible miracles, signs, wonders, miraculous events. And the NASB, I like how it translates verse 512 better because it says, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among them. The, this word hands is, is meant to show us that, that it's not the apostles who have the power, it's that they are conduits of God's power, that God is working through them. And really, I think it might harken back to Moses and, and what Moses did is he raises up his hands and the Red Sea is parted and, and the people walk through. And so God throughout history has moved through people's hands. It's not dissimilar to what we see in the New Testament where there's the laying on of hands in prayer and, and what it suggests is that, that as we lay the hands on that, that somehow God's power is, is moving through us and, and working on the person in whom, on whom we are laying on our hands. And so, so it's not that the disciples, the apostles, have any power in and of themselves. Instead, what is taking place is that God is working through their hands. Their hands are just vessels for the power of, of God. Now, God's power, right? Now, I know we can get really hung up on on miracles and, and some people almost come across like they don't believe miracles really happen at all in our society today. And uh, some people are, are what we call in theological circles cessationists. And so they would say that, that for the most part at least, these kind of signs and wonders stopped with the early church. I'm not one of them. And as I look at this passage and I look at at miracles throughout the history of Christianity, it's really hard for me to say anything close to God has stopped moving. And uh, we don't see it a lot in our country, but uh, I had this wonderful professor who uh, was a missionary in Brazil. His name was Bob Wright. I don't know if Dr. Wright is still living, but uh, Dr. Wright was a pretty old man when I had him as a missiology professor, the study of missions. And, and Dr. Wright uh, told incredible stories. He told the same ones over and over. He wasn't the youngest person. <laughs> and, and so I almost have his stories memorized. If I ever start a story with, I was once a, a missionary in Brazil. You can know I'm lying, but you can also know it's probably his story. And so he'd tell us stories about running from the government and climbing on top of trains and things like that. But one of the things that so stood out to me uh, being in a Baptist school where we didn't talk about these signs and wonders very much, albeit. Uh, 
Uh, sometimes, but and we weren't against them. The school as a whole isn't against them, but uh, but they just weren't discussed that often. But Dr. Wright, it was totally different because in his time in Brazil, he was completely reliant on the power of God. And so, I mean, the witch doctor would, would do her thing and, and try to heal somebody, and then he'd come in, and, and one of the stories he told us is like, now this person had a giant, I don't know, something stuck in their foot and their foot was gonna need to come off and he comes in and, and he's like, well, I'm gonna do surgery and pray and, and somebody in our class literally is like, uh, Dr. Wright, do you have any medical background? He's like, no, I just said a big prayer and just got a knife. I was like, are you kidding me? And he digs this thing out and, and then he like, I, and this seems so disgusting, but he washed it and put it in his mouth because the witch doctor would do something with their mouth. And it was almost as if he said, like, I got you. And it's like, what is happening? And he saw people, uh, demonic things, and uh, the whole crazy deal. And so he's completely relying on the power of God. But in, in our modern kind of American Christian culture, we don't even think about it or talk about it. And, and I wonder, I just wonder if it's because we believe whether in the church or in your workplace or in your personal life, wherever it might be, we believe that, that we have enough power. Because what Luke is seemingly saying to us in these summary statements is the absolute best things, what made this thing work, what made it triumphant is this. And, and here he says what made it work, what made it happen, what made it move forward is that the power of God, it's the power of God. And what's so interesting about Luke and the way that he writes it is, is like I said, we get hung up on can or can this not happen? And, and here I've already read this like crazy thing, like people are trying to get Peter's shadow to touch him so that they can be healed. And that's what we wanna think about. We wanna go, really, that's really interesting. What does that mean? And it, But that's like a passing idea for Luke. Luke isn't even really concerned, and, and it's interesting because there's like about 12 miracles in, in, in the book of Acts, uh, and Luke calls them signs and wonders, and, and really what Luke is, is so focused on is not how crazy they were. He's writing the story again for this guy named Theophilus, and you would think he'd be like, the focus would be like, dude, like people touched his shadow and it was crazy, but those are passing thoughts for Luke. What's so important to him is that these miracles showed the power of God and even more, they acted as proofs to the truth that Jesus really did get out of the grave. And so what Luke makes the emphasis of God's power is this. The, the apostles, the disciples, the early Christians, they're saying, hey, Jesus died for your sins and he got out of the grave. We're witnesses to that, but also the Holy Spirit is. Prove that the Holy Spirit is a witness. Look at all the people that are being healed. And so for Luke, the power of God isn't awesome because it seems cool. Like, oh, look at that, you know, somebody got gold fillings. The power of God is impressive to Luke because it makes the gospel story believable to the people they're sharing it with. That's what's so important to Luke. They are public, miraculous confirmations that the gospel 
is true. They're apologetic in nature. Ben Witherington III, who I'm leaning on heavily in this series, is one of my favorite authors about the Bible. He said that there are acts that could lead people to be open to have faith in Jesus. I think that the reality of the early church and what should be our reality today is that God's power in miraculous form has one primary purpose. And that's to show, that's to show that the gospel is true. Now, uh, subsequently, to build the church, and we see so much of that when we read about spiritual gifts in the early church. But even, even as Paul talks about spiritual gifts in the early church, 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about how some of them are edifying to believers But the more important gifts like prophecy, they cause outsiders to say, God is really amongst you. They're proof. They're proof. Now what I see in the the church today is very different than that. I see those of us who care very little about the power of God and care a ton about our own plans. And then I see people on the other side of the theological spectrum when it comes to this type of thing who are obsessed with spiritual gifts because I'm not sure, because it seems cool or because if they can do this certain thing then it makes them look better amongst their other churchgoers or I don't know, I don't know, but like there's so many of these gifts that are just used for for something that I'm not sure because I'm not in that theological paradigm, but it doesn't seem to be to show outsiders that the gospel is true. In fact, usually it just weirds people out that are on the outside. So there's this long quote that I wanna read to you and it's by G.W.H. Lamp. And he wrote this book called Miracles and he stops to talk about the miracles and acts and I think we would do well to pay attention to it Miracles are, therefore, in Luke's understanding of the matter, part and parcel of the entire mission of witness. The whole is miraculous insofar as it is a continuous, mighty work of God. Notice this, this is so key because we just think of these crazy things like shadows healing people, but listen to this. By the divine power, the gospel is preached, converts are made, the church is established in unity and brotherhood, the opposing powers, whether human or demonic, are conquered. The whole mission is affected by supernatural power, whether in guidance given to missionaries, in their dramatic release from prison or deliverance from enemies or shipwreck, or in the signs of healing and raising from the dead. It is consequently difficult to pick out the miraculous from the non-miraculous in Luke's story. I'll read that last sentence again. It is consequently difficult to pick out the miraculous from the non-miraculous in Luke's story. The idea in Acts about miracles and signs and mighty works and wonders and all of this stuff is that God's power is moving the church forward. It's all about God's power. Whether that means somebody being released from prison, whether it's them going through the walls or the religious leaders setting them free, whether that's somebody being healed or whether that's somebody having a direct call from God to go and be a missionary in a certain city, it's all part of the power of God and it all points to the truth of the gospel. 
It is difficult to pick out the miraculous from the non-miraculous in Luke's story. And on the opposite end of that, I would say this. In the modern American church, it is hard to pick out the business plan from the non-business plan. It's not hard to pick out the miraculous from the non-miraculous. I'm reading my own words now. The modern American church has become far too dependent on the natural hard work, a great plan, good marketing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and far too independent of the supernatural. We've become far too dependent on the natural and far too independent of the supernatural. That separates us from the first church by like a million miles. So in seminary, uh, and this story is a little embarrassing, uh, but it's a true story. In seminary, I uh, had this class and, and it was a church planting class. And so now seminary, like it's my master's degree and, and I had already four years of a pastoral studies degree. So by this point, I'd read a lot on church. I'd taken a... Uh, in essence, a church planting class. It was like different church organizational structures. And I came to this class completely expecting more of the same, but maybe on a master's level with, with like, here are the strategies and ideas to make church work. Um, and this teacher, Alan Carr, and I've mentioned him in sermons before, he, he, he changed my life. And I only had him for one week. It was an intensive course. But Alan Carr is a professor who is in the Southern Baptist world. He's over one of our church planting groups. I think it's called the Nehemiah Project and uh, something to that effect. And he teaches church planting in one of our seminaries. But he is a house church guy, meaning like he's kind of anti like the organization that we so often call church. Uh, he was asked in the middle of this class this question, hey, how have you not been fired? Literally a student that barely knew him said, how have you not been fired from this position? Because it is a, it's like a huge, you know, there's a tension there, right? Like you're telling us that we shouldn't have churches and buildings, but you're teaching us how to do it, right? Like, and, and he said, well, I've almost been fired every year, but now I'm tenured and uh, that's the end of that. So, um, and, and so, so he's, it, so somebody asked the question. So, because this is what we're all thinking. We're young, some of us are young anyway, and you know, we're in seminary and we're looking to get an education to do this church thing right and to build it and to you know, be successful, to be successful. And, and they're like, so what's your, what's your church growth strategy? You know, something to that effect. And, and, and he starts to talk about the power of prayer and how he... Uh, his, his whole model for discipleship is, is to, pr- to pray with people daily if he can and he'll call guys on the phone and pray with them and about how prayer teaches and, and he's talking about how you're just praying that God, you know, builds the house church so that they can, I don't know, multiply the house church and start another one. Talking about prayer and then, and then uh, this is how he changed my life. I wasn't having any of it. I stuck my hand up. And I don't know if these are the exact words I used. I probably said them in a more spiritual sounding way, but I basically said, so what if prayer doesn't work? What's your real strategy? It's pretty much the, yeah, like, and then, and then Dr. Carr 
looks at me about like you all looked at me. <laughs> like, did you just ask me that question? And, and I don't even know if he said these words out loud because he had me as soon as he looked at me, like it was over, like I got the message, like I'm an idiot, I'm gonna go, you know, I'm gonna, it was in San Francisco, I'm gonna drive back to Oregon, you know, where we're less spiritual than San Francisco, no, but, um, and, uh, and, and I think he may have said like these words, something to the effect of, do you think you have a more powerful plan than to let God move in your midst? And it, 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 it changed everything. Our church is smaller because of that moment. Um, because what he did is he, he just, he started me on this, this journey to say like, how can we just do church right and, and then let God take care of the rest? And, and what's funny is that I, after that, became like, like I, I wanted to know everything about church. I, I read about church, I listen about church. I, and, and what's so interesting to me, and it, it's, it's such a sad state of affairs, and almost all of these books that I read come out of America, and so it says a lot. I hardly ever see uh, anybody talk about what the Bible says about church, and I hardly ever see I mean, they kind of throw in verses, obviously, right? Because they would be like me in that seminary class if they didn't. But, uh, but what I also hardly ever see is anybody talk about the work of God in church. They talk about strategies. They talk about budgets. They talk about leadership organization. They talk about everything that I can find probably written better for me in the business book section. That's the model of churches that we've created in our country. And these guys in the first church, like, it's like they just don't have a, a plan. <laughs> and they're totally reliant on God's movement. And, and I think plans are great. I, I think they're important. We have a plan here. We have quarterly meetings. We have an annual meeting coming up in July. I mean, all those things are great, but when you, when you make them void of the supernatural power of God, they no longer are important. The, the problem, one of the big problems with the American church is that we are no longer filled with the power of God, and I believe it's because we think that our power our ideas, our structures, our models are more important than God's power. And the world is looking at us saying, why should I believe the gospel? And what I'd love to be able to tell them is come to my church and see all the miracles God's, God's doing. But I can't. As a byproduct of that, what we read in Acts 5.13 is, is that no one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. I mean, the power of God was so strong, and this probably refers to the Ananias and Sapphira story that I read earlier. I mean, they literally died for lying to God. And it doesn't say even that God struck them dead. It just says they died. It really appears that God struck them dead. But, um, but it doesn't say that. It just really feels that way. And so people are like, there's so much power of God in, in that church, in those people, that I'm scared to meet with them. Would anybody say that about us? Would anybody say that about us?
And on the flip side, and this is crazy because this is so untrue of just half of Christians, it feels like, they were highly regarded. They were liked. There's a novel idea. I mean, I look at the American church today and it seems like we're bent on trying to be unliked. Like, what can we do to make everybody dislike us on the outside? And the early church, nobody dared join them. Everybody was too scared to gather with them, but people really liked them. And it's all connected to the power of God. This is one of my favorite dichotomies in scripture, this, this idea that people were scared of, of being with them and also at the same time really liked them because it's the opposite of the American church, right? People don't like us. I think that if you took a survey of just the, and this isn't probably your fault, but if you just took a survey on the likability of Christians in America, we'd probably come out not looking very good. Somebody find that data for me, get it back to me. But at the, at the same time, people were scared to be a part of them. And we just want, we just, we're like opposite. Like there's nothing scary about us because we've sucked the supernatural out of this deal. We're totally relying on our plans and our plans are all about reaching people and getting more people in the seats even if they don't become Christians. They're all about getting people into the seats. And so we, we strive and we work and we fight to get people into the seats. All the while, we have tons of churches filled up with non-Christians. People can go to a church for years and years, never hear about the gospel and we're not that likable. But what if we just said, let's rely on the power of God. Yeah, let's have a plan, but let's rely on the power of God. Then maybe we would be likable and maybe people would be scared to join us. But in verse 14, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number daily. So people were scared to be a part of this movement unless they gave their lives to Jesus. Now that's really fascinating, right? because we've made church as comfortable as possible for everybody, partly because we've sucked the supernatural out of it. <laughs> Said, what's our great plan? God, if you decide to show up and it fits our plan, then that's great. But, but these people were scared and yet they were giving their lives to Jesus because the power was so incredible. What we think is if we're likable and everybody's really comfortable in our church settings, then more and more people will become Christians. The 90s model for church was just that. Like we'll be likable, we'll make everybody comfortable, and then we'll see more and more people become Christians. And churches grew. But now we have a generation of their kids <laughs> that are not going to church. Right? They're millennials. They're me. And they've said, well, what's the point of church? It was a good little entertainment service, you know, but I really never felt the power of God. We have this whole generation of people. I almost said kids, but we're not anymore. We have this whole generation of people that are like, it's more important for me to watch football on Sundays than it is to go to church. Maybe, just maybe, because they never sensed the power of God within church. Our entertainment level will never match Hollywood's. And if the power of God is not present in our midst, if the supernatural is not taking place, if we can not tell the difference between the miraculous and the non-miraculous, then man, go do something else. Go do something else because this isn't that important. 
I just think that we need to get back to to relying on the power of God. We need to we need to rely more on the supernatural and less on the natural. One more quote for you. Here's the rub. The church is running out of effective options created in the power of its own volition, charisma, and talents. Our energetically constructed plans become progressively less effective with each successive generation. I love that, it's so true. We are in need of something more powerful than slicker services, even more radical missional pursuits, or more culturally savvy ways to share the gospel. For those early apostles, after the crucifixion and ascension of Jesus, returning to Jerusalem to regroup, their very first act was to pray. Having come to the end of themselves, they prayed. That was the totality of their strategic plan. Today, we need leaders who follow that path. I'm just going to pray for that. I'll leave it there. Lord, I want to see, I want to see a revival in this country. And Lord, it will not happen because we become cooler, because because the older pastors start wearing dark-rimmed glasses and skinny jeans. Uh, because we have better projection systems and sound systems, because we have new creative ideas. It's going to happen, God, as you, as you act, as you do supernatural things in our events. And those supernatural things, God, might take the form of, of what we generally call miraculous signs, God, or God, those those supernatural acts might just be in the ideas that you do give us. But God, we must return to a place where all of it, all of it is wrapped up in your power. Not wrapped up in your power, God. Where, where all of it, all of it is because your power, because of your power and through your power, God, I pray, God, that we as a church would care, and I've not led very well in this way, God, but I I pray I would. I, I pray that we would care less about our natural plans and more about your supernatural work because, God, our ideas are not ever going to be good. And what we see as we look around, Lord, is that culture now shifts like every three months I've seen, Lord, And so if we're just trying to keep up with cultural relevance, we'll fail. But your power will not fail. And and God, in that first church, your power just moved, moved the church forward and people were becoming Christians like crazy. No matter what city, no matter what culture, no matter what was taking place, you were, were converting people, you were causing unity, you were causing spiritual growth, you were doing it all. And so I pray, God, that we would be a church that leans upon you. And Lord, I pray that 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 would be seen in the way that we approach prayer. God, 
I pray that, that we would make prayer such an important part of, of what we do and who we are. I pray that, that Sundays before church, God, we would have more and more people who come to that prayer gathering. And I pray when we gather monthly for prayer, God, that it would be our, our entire church, that all of us would gather together and seek your movement, Lord. Because we can't, we can't create any type of important movement on our own. We can do things that will fill these seats faster. We can do things, God, that, that lets us look cooler and be more relevant and all of that, but we cannot, we cannot, God, see revival in this country, even in this city, even in this neighborhood, if it's not you doing the supernatural. And so I pray that we would rely on you and that we'd pray to you and that God you would make us a church where the natural and supernatural are are so tied together that we cannot tell the difference anymore. God please work in and through this church. Do miracles here. God move powerfully in us and through us and in this world. Let people be drawn to us, not because we're likable, God, but because you're so strong in our midst that they can't stay away. It's like a magnet to them. Do something extraordinary, God. And please let us be your hands for that work. I ask these things in your holy name. Amen.